A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Gare out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little, it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. To Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yudi Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode has been generously sponsored by the All Daf Daf Yomi app. Make sure to download your All Daf app for all your Daf Yomi needs to have a wide variety of the best Daf Yomi shiurim and supplements possible around today, and especially during these days when it's getting more and more difficult and challenging to get out to the, the regular Dafyei Mishir. So you want to be able to continue the consistency and even get Shiram on other Masechtas for the other for anyone else who's interested at home. And uh, it's all available, that and more, on the old Daf Dafyei app. So make sure to get that. And I'll take this opportunity to mention that sponsorships are available for Jewish History Soundbites episodes. So you can be in touch with me and help support the work of Jewish History Soundbites during this challenging time. So I hope everyone is healthy and well and safe, and uh, and uh, we're here to um, be together with everyone in, during this time. Um, I'll start off by saying that my brother-in-law just uh, yesterday receives a text on his phone um, from the Shabak, you know, officially it says from the health department, but you know, you wonder where the health department got the information from. And it says, um, it's addressed to my brother-in-law by his name and says, uh, on this and this day and this and this time, you were next to someone who is diagnosed or is tested positive for the coronavirus. And therefore you have to go into self quarantine, uh, for 14 days. Make sure to do so. Um, so. And that's the type of country I live in. Um, so in that context, I thought it would be great to speak a little bit about the Israeli Mossad and some of the operations that they've done uh, and accomplished throughout the years. And the Mossad, which is an incredible organization uh, in charge of gathering Israeli intelligence outside of the country, as opposed to the Shabak, which I just mentioned, which is a parallel organization, it used to be that they're actually one, together, um, which is um, internal intelligence, the same type of distinction that's between the FBI and the CIA, the FBI being the equivalent of the Shabak and the CIA being equivalent, the equivalent of the Mossad. 
So it starts from the beginning of the country, when the, the founding of the state of Israel. There's already intelligence, actually. There's an intelligence arm of the Haganah, uh, Shai, it's called. And and uh, Ben-Gurion makes an official, builds an official intelligence arm uh, for, you know, international intelligence. In 1949, he asks Ruven Shiloach, who was Yerushalmi, grew up as a religious Yerushalmi Jew, um, had become secular and was involved in intelligence operations even before the founding of the state, military intelligence and other stuff. And he founds the Mossad, um, you know, officially called Mossad Labitachon, something or another for some security and intelligence, but everyone knows it by its name, the Mossad. And um, he builds it and in a car accident, he took a leave of absence. When he came back, his subordinate, Isser Harel, had already become the main guy in charge. And shortly afterwards, Ruven Shiloach goes into early retirement, and Isser Harel uh, becomes the titular head of the Mossad, and famously so. And Harel was a, a fascinating individual. Um, he was born in Vitebsk, uh, famous uh, in the in the pale, you know, famous as in the pale of settlement of Russia, where place of Chabad of Chasidus, Mendel of Atepsk, one of the early leaders. So he was born there. He had a very wealthy father, and in fact, his father had learned in Valozhin. So this is a guy who comes from real uh, Jewish aristocracy. His parents lose their money during the revolution, and he was in Russia, in Vitebsk, in White Russia, during the Russian Revolution. He, in fact. Uh, related later in life that he um, attended a speech by Leon Trotsky. He had actually heard a live speech by Trotsky, interestingly enough. And the parents moved to Dvinsk. So he essentially grows up in Dvinsk. He moves to, becomes a Zionist. He moves to Palestine in 1930. He was 17 in 1930, and certificates were distributed by the British only from 18 years old and up to individuals. So he forged his documents that he's really 18. And not only that, but he smuggles a gun into the country inside a loaf of bread. So this guy is the future head of the Mossad, legendary head of the Mossad. And with his forged documents and smuggling in a gun, he already, in as a 17-year-old in 1930, is making a big statement about what type of uh, lifestyle he's going to lead once he comes to Israel. So he really was the architect of the Mossad and of Israeli intelligence altogether. He actually lived till he was 91 years old, died only about 15, 16 something years ago, not that long ago. In his later years, he lived a much quieter life. He wrote a lot of memoirs. He had a very intellectual look. He had that bald head, intellectual type of look, you know, Litvak from Dvinsk uh, type of, uh, you know, uh, which, by the way, a bunch of Mossad chiefs had that look. They were all, no, most of them were bald, which gives them a certain uh, intelligence, you know, a certain type of bald. I don't know. Maybe it's just my weird, uh, strange feeling about it. Either way, the Mossad becomes a respected as an international intelligence agency in 1956, their first big uh, intelligence success. Um, Nikita Khrushchev gives at the 20th uh Communist Congress um, in Moscow, he um, denounces Stalinism and acknowledges Stalin's crimes. And in the West, they were really, really curious 
to get the text of the speech, and no one was able to. And um, the Israeli embassy in Warsaw, through the Mossad, through the Shabak, was able to get the actual text of the speech, photocopy it, and send it out to the West. And that was a huge intelligence uh, success story. And they handed it over to the CIA, and that really put them on the map um, as a major intelligence agency. So that was... um, that was their 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 major success. So they had all kinds of famous exploits uh, of that era in the 1950s and 60s, um, most of which deserve an episode on their own, so I don't want to get into them. Of course, the capture of Eichmann. By the way, it wasn't only Eichmann. They were involved in Nazi hunting in general. They also, they didn't kidnap, they killed um, Herbert Chukers, who was known as the Butcher of Riga. Um, during that period of time. He wasn't brought to trial. He wasn't as famous as Eichmann, so he's not as well known, but he was a big Nazi murderer, and the Mossad uh, eliminated him in an operation. Also, of course, probably the most famous Mossad spy of all time was Eli Cohn in Syria, and uh, his story continues to fascinate. That's definitely an episode on its own. The Mossad was also involved in helping North African Jewry, the, the Jewish communities of North Africa, make Aliyah and come to Israel during the 1950s and 60s, which was some pretty daring operations because those were massive airlifts. These are all huge Mossad oper- operations of those days that require episodes on their own. So instead, I'll focus on two other also major episodes uh, of the 1960s and 70s and um, great stories, somewhat famous. The first one is the story of Yassel Shuchmacher. Yassel Shuchmacher was uh, born in the Soviet Union. He comes at the young age of five years old with his parents to the state of Israel. In 1957, 1957 there was a bit of a, again, the, the immigration of the, uh, or rather emigration of Jews from the Soviet Union, and they're immigrating to Israel and the United States and other places is, a, is also a great story. But in 1957, there was a bit of an easing of the exits uh, of Jews from the Soviet Union, from Poland, from the actual Soviet Union, um, and they came to Israel. And they're they're financially not doing well. So in the, as an interim um, maneuver, they they give over their child, Yasala, to the mother's father, who's a Breslover chassid. The Breslovers get involved in and everything exciting, apparently, uh, named Nachman Sterkis, and he lives in Yerushalayim. He's a, a from a guy, and his daughter and son-in-law are not. They're secular. And and he raises his son. Three years later, the parents are more financially stable. They ask for their son back, and he refuses to hand them over. A, he feels that they're going to raise him secular, and B, he he was led to understand that they're planning on bringing him back to the Soviet Union, which would be even worse than being raised secular, communist, atheist. It's, uh, how can we allow such a thing to take place? He decides to hide Yasla. Oh, that was that started when a whole series of events went on um, as a result, um, and they 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 start to search for him. The, the grandfather's arrested. And he goes to jail, actually, and the grandfather's son goes to jail, um, and he's transferred from hiding place to hiding place. He was on the uh, the religious 
settlement of Koimimiyus, Koimimiyut, uh, for a period of time, and the Israeli police start to search for him. And it became a major divisive story within Israeli society, which was already struggling with the religious-secular divide in a host of other areas, and there was a point of contention from the founding of the State of Israel, from even the pre-founding of the State of Israel, about the secular nature of of Zionism, of political Zionism, and the religious establishment in the old religious communities. And it continues on in the State of Israel, this religious-secular divide and what nature the Jewish state should have. And, of course, it took on all kinds of extreme measures, and that's all famous history. So within that milieu, within that context of the tensions between the religious and the secular in the early years of the state, you throw this into the mix of the secular state of Israel now on the chase of looking for this child who the religious grandfather wants to keep religious and the 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 secular parents ostensibly want to keep him want to make him secular and the state is using the powers of the state to try to get him back and the religious essentially did a kidnapping the grandfather was accused in court of kidnapping which 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 was a serious crime and it becomes a societal issue. It becomes a, everyone gets involved. And it became like a rallying cry of, Efo Yassala, where is Yassala? And what's funny about the rallying cry is that it went both ways. Very often a secular uh, would see a religious Jew in the street, a random secular, random religious. Another, neither of them had any connection to the story. None of them worked in the police. None of them were related to the Sterkis or Shuchmacher families. But rather it became just a point of identity and the secular would yell at the religious, Eifo Yassala, and you're the one hiding him and you're the one who's a kidnapper and you're the one who's who's doing all that. And Shalom Shadron, uh, the great Magad of Yishlaim, told a story about how he was accosted in the middle of the street, um, Eifo Yassala, and he engaged them in conversations. Do you think I kidnapped him? What is what is What is the story here? Why are you and I involved in this story? And what does it say about us as a people? And a whole a whole dialogue that he maintained uh, with them in in the context of that story. So so this becomes a, a rallying cry. Eventually, it goes the other way um, when the police and eventually internationally when the Mossad was doing that would be doing their searches, and and uh, they would. They would be taunted by the religious in their communities. You're doing your searches here, ha? Efo Yasala, where are you going to find him? Where are you going to look for Yasala? So it becomes the battle cry on both sides of the camp. Now, he's eventually smuggled out of the country. The, um, the, the, uh, some religious extremists, um, they, they, they are able to hire a fascinating woman, Ruth Ben David who was a convert, she was a guilleris, and she had worked in the French resistance, the Maki, the French uh, resistance during World War II, and she uh, you know, knew a thing or two about covert operations, and she had become a guilleris and joined with the Naturi Karta in Meisharim in Yerushalayim, and she was recruited by them to smuggle him out of the country. She it was an interesting woman. She later married in a very controversial marriage to Rab Amram Bloy, the head of the Naturi Karta. She died only about 20 years ago. She lived in Yerushalayim until about 20 years ago. She was still around. And um, she 
smuggles them out of the out of the country, uh, disguised as a girl, disguised as her young daughter. So Yasela is out of the country. She brings them to Switzerland, to France, and eventually to the United States. At this point, when the when the Israeli government realizes that Yasela is out of the country, so now the Mossad comes into the picture, and Ben Gurion calls in Isser Harel and puts him on the case. Uh, Isser Harel used. He personally took charge of the case. One of the chief operatives in in the Mossad later said that Harel was obsessed, completely obsessed with this story to get Yasala. He used more than twice as many agents as he used for the Eichmann kidnapping. He used to find Yasala. This became the number one uh, issue. And, and Harel said, which is interesting, he said his agents had an easier time infiltrating Nazi circles in Argentina than infiltrating Haredi communities in the United States. In Europe, in the United States, places like Williamsburg, they were outed. They would be they would realize that they're Mossad agents and the kids and the people in the shuls and the yeshivas, wherever they were searching and, and trying to be disguised, these Mossad agents were were called out. Were and that's when the Afoyasala cry came out on that side. And the Mossad has agents all over Europe, all over America. There, and Ben Gurion and Harel's uh, assumption was is that he was for sure being hidden in a Haredi community. And they figured, how many Haredi communities in the world are there? Not that many, so it shouldn't be that hard to find. And they're going through Williamsburg and Borough Park and all the Haimisha places in New York and trying to find Yasala. At some point, even the um, even the FBI. Was was on board to help with the Mossad. Uh, they had, you know, intelligence communities have uh, relationships all around, and the FBI was recruited by the Mossad to cooperate and try to help them. And there was even FBI agents who went down to Camp Aguda during the summer of 1962 to search for Yasala. And the kids in Camp Aguda were also taught that you're supposed to taunt taunt the intelligence officials with the cry of Efo Yasala, which I'm not sure if the FBI agents understood what they were saying. Either way, they didn't find him in Camp Aguda. Now, why? Maybe he wasn't accepted to Camp Aguda, or maybe he went to Camp Monk, or maybe a different bungalow colony. It's unclear what happened with Yasala that summer that he was not in Camp Aguda. But either way, he was eventually found after an almost three-year search um, they, Mossad finally found, which was like considered a major success of the Mossad, the obsession of Isra Harel bore fruit. He was found by a, Sat, a family of Satmar Hasidim in Brooklyn and brought back to Israel, brought back to his parents. His parents raised them secular and, and then Chulon. And as far as I know, Yasla Shochmacher is still alive and living in Israel today. That was, um, one story. Another story that I want to briefly discuss was uh, another major operation of the Mossad that went also for even longer amount of time, for years and years, was called Operation Wrath of God. One of the most terrible tragedies in the, in Israeli history, recent modern Jewish history, which is part of our uh, the Jewish history soundbites audio intro, was the tragedy of the Munich massacre at the 1972 Olympic Games. Um, where 11 Israeli athletes were murdered by Palestinian terrorists of the Black September uh, organization. And, um, and in, the, in the wake of that tragedy, 
the um, the Mossad was tasked with uh, revenge and the destruction of the Black September. It wasn't only revenge. The idea was to to destroy the Black September terrorist organization that they shouldn't be able to perpetrate terrorist acts against Israelis. It wasn't the, by the way the the Munich massacre wasn't the only thing that Black September did. It was just the biggest and most famous, but they were a terrible, uh, murderous organization, and uh, and the idea was both revenge, wrath of God, right? It was the, it was the uh, that was the code name of the operation, and also to destroy the Black September. Now they go about doing it, and the Mossad gathers intelligence about different operatives and heads and chiefs of the Black September were all over Europe, and they. One after another, they decide who the next target is. They locate him and they kill him. They eliminate him, and and they found them in different European capitals, uh, in Rome and Paris. And they drove the entire organization underground until it was completely broken apart. It was an amazingly long, persistent, and successful uh, operation. They would even uh, they they even waged a certain form of the Mossad waged a certain form of psychological warfare against the organization. They sometimes took out ads in major, major... Most of the operations took place in Europe, where the terrorist organization was active, and they would find these uh, Palestinian terrorists hiding in different places in Europe. And sometimes they would take out ads in newspapers, in European newspapers, with a, with a, a notice of mourning or an obituary of an upcoming murder, meaning they they would name the operative who they're about to kill, and they would and they would say and they would write you know just a notice of mourning upon the death of when the guy was still alive and was going to be killed in a few days. They would tease it out as it were, and they would go ahead and carry out um, the the their their uh, their move against him. Um, in 1979, which is already several years after the Munich massacre, they in Beirut, uh, the head of the Black September, Ali Hassan Salama, whose uh, father um, was was a was an original terrorist during the Great uh, Arab Uprising in Brit- from British rule in the 1930s, and his father uh, was killed um, subsequently in. I don't remember which which operation his father was killed, but he was kind of continuing a family tradition. This is someone who was raised literally on the uh, on the lap of the Mufti Haj Amin Al Husseini, and he went into terrorist activity, leading the Black September. So this Ali Hassan Salama, um, who was the head of the whole organization, is in Beirut in Lebanon, and he's going with a whole entourage, about three four cars of his security detail. Driving down a street in Beirut, there's a car parked on the side of the street right where he's driving, and there's a Mossad operative in an apartment building overlooking the street, and through a remote control, remember 1979, through a remote control, the car bomb is set off, the car bomb blows up and destroys two or three cars of this guy's entourage, killing him and a bunch of his operatives, and with that... Operation Wrath of God was called a success. It was not called off. It continued. They still searched for other operatives. And even as late as 1992, there was another elimination of a former Black September terrorist. So you're talking about a major operation that was mostly successful. And, um, and that was, um, 
Operation Wrath of God in, in the wake of the of the uh, Munich massacre. So that's just a little little taste of Mossad uh, operations. We'll hopefully come back um, in the in the future with more episodes of uh, of these exciting uh, operations of the Mossad. But this is Yehudi Gabber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at ygebss at gmail.com for questions, comments, sources, tours and trips, and of course, to be in touch with me about sponsorships of episodes of Jewish History Soundbites. Download the old Daf, Daf Yoemi app for all your Daf Yoemi needs, and you can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.